I did not have sexual relations with that woman. We're not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. China's been waiting a long time to take the reins. My name is Dave Letterman. Uh, last night, I became a father. Thank you very much. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. George W. Bush, and I approve this message. And now, this is history. You're going to need outstanding hosts. With Dave Plyer. It's a guy, but I love you. And Dave Schwann on 720 WGN. All right then, 720 WGN. Uh, Yeah, Dave Plyer's name is in the intro, but he's off tonight. Uh, I'm John Landecker, your Thanksgiving leftover. What do we got this day in history, Dave? Well, hi, John. Uh, tell you, happy day after Thanksgiving, <laughs> and I hope uh, you had a great, great holiday here. We've got some interesting items here that uh, took place uh, this week in history, this day in history. Right. We'll start with 1792. Mm. A gentleman by the name of Benjamin Banneker first published uh, a book called The Farmer's Almanac. We've all heard of it. Maybe yes. not all of us have gone through it, but can be an interesting read. And just a few weeks ago, they released their winter weather predictions for this coming winter, and that's a tradition for them that now goes back over 100 years. It started in 1918. What's in store for us? The Almanac suggests that areas of the United States east of the Continental Divide will see cold, snow, or both this winter. And specifically, Chicago is noted to be unreasonably cold and snowy. Mm. I, I believe that. <laughs> I do, too, given the fact <laughs> that we had unreasonably cold just a few days ago and some snow as well. Maybe that's a kind of a precursor to what's in store for us. Um, jumping ahead now to 1867, there was a U.S. Uh, congressional committee that looked into the impeachment of then-President Andrew Johnson. During the years right after the Civil War, President Johnson had fought repeatedly with uh, some Republican members of Congress over the reconstruction of the South. Johnson had vetoed legislation that Congress passed to protect the rights of those who were freed from slavery. But this uh, ongoing argument culminated in uh, the House voting uh, in 1868 to impeach President Johnson, and eventually Mm. the Senate acquitted him and then subsequently adjourned by only one vote. He was acquitted by only one vote. So talk about getting getting, uh, by by the skin of your teeth. No kidding. He did not not even think about running for a second term, by the way. He's a right. one-term president. Well, you know, an impeachment will do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
can. Uh, I'm John Landecker, your Thanksgiving leftover. What do we got this day in history, Dave? So we move on to 1941. Here's a baseball legend name and a gentleman's gentleman. Lou Boudreaux from Harvey, Illinois, at the age of 24, became the manager of what was then known as the Cleveland Indians, now, of course, the Cleveland Guardians, managing them to a World Series title and signed with the Boston Red Sox, uh, playing full-time in 1951, moving up to a player manager in 1952, and then official full-fledged manager uh, in the dugout from 1953 to 54. Following that, becoming the first manager of what was then known as the Kansas City Athletics in 1955 after they moved from Philadelphia. Then he was fired after 104 games and replaced by a gentleman named Harry Kraft. He last managed the Chicago Cubs in 1960 and did play-by-play for Cubs games in the late 1950s and uh, before switching roles with the manager Charlie Grimm in 1960. Uh, after only one season as the manager, though, Boudreaux returned to the radio booth for WGN and remained there until 1987. I remember him doing the play-by-play along with Vince Lloyd and also did radio play-by-play for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, in the 1960s, and worked for uh, Blackhawks for radio and TV games as well uh, for WGN also. We actually have audio from a couple of Weebolts live reads from some WGN Radio Cubs broadcasts with Jack Quinlan and Lou Boudreaux. you got to hear this. National reputation brands are your biggest value at Weebolts apartment stores near you. Lou, when a woman shops for dresses, she seems to place a lot of importance on the label. Well, that's natural, Jack. One of the names the gals swear by is Jonathan Logan in wool knit dresses. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And that's what they feature at Weebolts, where the national reputation brands are on display. Right now, I understand Weebolts has some mighty smart-looking ones. Is that right? Feet. Is that right, Jack? You know, we never know what the hell we're going to sell on this. <laughs> So that Jonathan Logan knits in wide range of colors at only $18. <laughs> That's a good tip for you gals who wear junior sizes 5 to 15. It'll pay you to visit your nearby Weebolt department store. You'll find one that's just right for you. What's next? We've played three innings in the fourth inning. Whatever you need or want today Shop the well-known brands They're on display at Weebolts National reputation brands are your biggest value At Weebolts department stores near you Lou, since we've been working with Weebolts this year I'm learning more about women's clothes every day Now, for example, do you know what a shadow panel is? Well, old chap, I haven't the foggiest What is it? Well, it's a lining they put in women's slips. And they have these slips at uh, Weebolts? Do they? (laughs) (laughs) Say, don't ad-lib, just read what's on the script. (laughs) Well, Kaiser makes them in nylon, and it's light as a feather. These slips are edged with lace (laughs) at the top and bottom. (laughs) They sound great, huh? They sure do. (laughs) Well, <laughs> <laughs>
seat. <laughs> That's the last one of those we'll get all summer, I bet. <laughs> Quite a tie-in with the station there, John. I guess so. Now, here's something that's rather seasonal. 1949, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer appeared on music charts. And there's a Chicago connection to the origin of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. In 1939, a 30-year-old copywriter at Montgomery Ward named Robert L. May was asked by his boss at Montgomery Ward to write what he was called a cheery children's book for Christmas shoppers. And suggested it should be an animal story with a character like Ferdinand the Bull, which was recently released as a short film by Walt Disney. A soft-covered Rudolph poem booklet was first published by Montgomery Ward in 1939. The shoppers loved it. 2.4 million copies were distributed. And uh, then... Uh, when World War II set in, restrictions on paper use present, prevented a reissue until 1946. In that year, 3.6 million soft-covered copies uh, went out to shoppers. And in 1948, um, uh, May persuaded his brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, to write the words and the music for an adaptation of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The song was turned down originally by people like Bing Crosby and Dinah Shore, but Gene Autry recorded it in 1949, uh, and the song became the second most popular Christmas tune of all time, surpassed only by White Christmas. Nineteen fifty-nine. A play called Once Upon a Mattress opens at the Alvin Theater in New York City for 460 performances. This play marked the Broadway debut of a young up-and-coming performer named Carol Burnett, who originated the role of Princess Winifred. Now here's Carol talking to Kelly Ripa and Ryan Seacrest on the role and the story about her working on Broadway and television at that time, seven days a week. Well, I, I got a big break. I, I uh, was in an off-Broadway show called Once Upon a Mattress. And then yes. I went into uh, the Gary Moore show. <laughs> oh, baby. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then I got on, on Gary's show. And so for uh, almost a whole year... I was doubling. I was doing Gary's show and then uh, getting on the subway and going to do uh, Once Upon a Mattress. And, so. and that is the bench, the blueprint that Ryan Seacrest has followed his entire career. Really? I'm trying, yes. Well, there did, you, was, did you get I, tired I, on the mattresses? Because well, <laughs> I think I've... Well, I don't know if I want to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but at one time, I, I didn't have a day off. Because uh, we did uh, two shows on Sunday, and then on Monday, oh, I would yeah. start on Gary's show all over again. So this one afternoon during a matinee, the whole point of Once Upon a Mattress, it was a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And she's the princess who gets on top of these 20 mattresses and can't sleep because there's a lump in the, in yeah. the bottom. I fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep on stage. <laughs> All I remember is, I, I, maybe I was out for about 10 or 15 seconds, you know, and the stage, stage manager in the wings was saying, Carol, Carol, 
wake up, wake up. You know, and I jumped up, you know, and the audience, they didn't know, you know. <laughs> And so then they did give me a day off. That's when you know you're working hard. Yeah. That's when you, you know it. for sure. Yeah. Hey, that's quite a clip. Thank that's you, how you get Thank a day you, off. And we'll be back with more This Is History after this on 720 WGN. John Landecker for Dave Plyer, and we're doing the time-honored This Is History. So where are we, Dave? We are now up to 1963 and an unforgettable event forever in world history. It was on this day, November 25th. 1963, President Kennedy was laid to rest. It's hard to believe, John, that it's 59 years since John Kennedy's assassination. Wow. And I need to ask you, as we all ask everyone who was alive and remember at that time, John, where were you and what were you doing when you heard of the president's assassination? I was in high school and I was in Hope Chipman's geometry class. And we had a student teacher, and she sent the student teacher to the library where there was a television, and the student teacher came back and informed Miss Chipman and the rest of the class that President Kennedy had died, and Miss Chipman paused momentarily and said, I think he would have wanted us to go on. <laughs> and we did. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I was seven, and I was on the playground. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon, and the uh, playground supervisor happened to be uh, my second-grade teacher who had a very solemn look on her face, uh, happened to be close by, and she said, if we just got word about the president, we need to go in. And uh, that's, I, I, I actually could take you to the spot <laughs> wow. on the, the grass there, you know. But your recollection is just like everyone else, John. It's astounding. Where you remembered, you remembered the teacher's name, the yep. actions. Yep. It's just extraordinary how that just will forever stay in, in everyone's mind. Moving up to 1966, a music uh, date here. Jimi Hendrix and his new band called the Jimi Hendrix Experience played their first uh, show in the U.K. at the club called the Bag of Nails in London. And then in 1971, Carly Simon released a big hit, Anticipation, became one of her signature songs, and it was, of course, used in commercials for Heinz Ketchup through the late 1970s and into the 1980s. So take a listen. Their ketchup's coming a lot slower than ours does. That's not good manner. Well, you notice our Heinz. Here, taste it. Anticipation. Pouring it on a little thick. Yeah! Up to 1979 now, another sports-related item. Pat Summerall and John Madden broadcast a game together for the first time, and that partnership lasted 22 years. It became one of the most iconic partnerships in TV sportscasting history. Here's Pat and John talking about Thanksgiving Day football as the Bears took on the Lions. We're on the bus outside the Pontiac Silverdome getting ready to broadcast the traditional Thanksgiving Day game between the Lions and the Bears this year. And John, as you think about all the people around the country sitting down to enjoy Thanksgiving with their friends and their families, we're here with our friends and our family, and we, do, we indeed have a lot to be thankful for. Well, I think 17 years together, 17 great years, and, and to me there's nothing better. There's no place that I would rather be 
today on Thanksgiving than right here, right now at a football game. And there's just certain things that go together. You know, the turkey, the family, the tradition, football, and we have it all today. And we have the whole tradition of the National Football League. You know, I carry a picture of Red Grange around, and I look at this and I think, the first Thanksgiving Day game ever played was here in Detroit, the Chicago Bears at Detroit, and Red Grange was in that game. And I think when you have that, when you have Red Grange, and you have turkey and stuffing and, and dumplings and, and, and football and, and the Chicago Bears and the Detroit Lions, I don't think it gets any better than this. And now up to 1984. On the morning of November 25th, 1984, Bob Geldof and Midge Orr arrived at the Sarm West Studios around 8 o'clock in the morning, Sunday, uh, to uh, record uh, a song that is now known as Do They Know It's Christmas? Now, the media was in attendance there. Recording was scheduled to begin at 10.30, and that's when the artists began coming in. Geldof had arranged for the uh, British newspaper, The Daily Mirror, to have exclusive access inside the studio and ensured that a team photo was taken by newspaper photographer Brian Aris before any recording got underway, knowing it would be ready in time to appear in the following day's edition of the paper and help publicize the record, Do They Know It's Christmas? Among the artists performing, Bono, George Michael, David Bowie, Jody Watley, Paul McCartney, and many others, and they raised over $14 million for famine relief in Africa. There's our history rundown, John. Fantastic, as always. Thank you so much, and have a great weekend. You too, John. Thank you. 720 WGN.